Good morning, everyone. The resurrection and marriage, Luke 20, uh, verses 27 to 44. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. And finally, the woman died too. So now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? So Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to be taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. And then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Well, I must have been about six years old, I suppose, when I saw on TV for the very first time the BBC production of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You, you might be familiar with that show. If not, it involves four young children who stumble into another world. They find their way, of all places, they find their way there through the back of a wardrobe. And as a kid, six-year-old kid, I was kind of captivated by this other world. Another place where the rules of, of this world don't really apply. You know, for example, in that world, it was called Narnia, if you, if you haven't heard of it. In that world, animals talk. Not just trained parrots like we might see today, but badgers and beavers and wolves and foxes. They talk, and they talk just like people. And in my family, as I was growing up as one of four kids, I, I spent a fair bit of time in my head imagining my own strange world. And I went to different wardrobes, and I'd check the back of them occasionally to see if I could find my way in there. I imagine what it would be like being there, the battles I'd fight and the way that they'd crown me as king of this world. I imagine eating endless plates of Turkish delight. It was a few years after that that I actually tasted Turkish delight for the first time. It's a disappointment, isn't it? Really, it's not as good. 
If you've been like me and you've had a Narnia phase, I guess that by this stage in life you've probably grown out of that phase. But I don't think we grow out of wondering what the age to come will be like. Perhaps you think of the age to come as a bit like the Philadelphia cream cheese adverts. Have you seen those ones where there's people kind of floating around on white fluffy clouds eating bagels spread with cream cheese? I wonder what do you think life will be like in heaven or perhaps more accurately what will life be like in the, in the new creation? What are your expectations? Maybe it's not Philadelphia cream cheese. Maybe it's a bit more like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where you can just kind of eat things that are all around you, break a doorknob off and chew on it, something like that. Or maybe you have a much simpler view of what the new age will be like. Maybe for you it's just a place of peace and quiet where all the distractions are removed. Or maybe at the moment you're struggling with sickness or pain in, in some particular way and you're hoping for the age to come as being a place where pain and sickness and distraction just disappear. In our reading today, we get just the tiniest peek, I think, of what life in the next age is going to be like. There's not a lot of detail in this passage. I think all of us would have liked Jesus to just add a few more details about what life in the age to come is like. He doesn't do that. But what he does do is confirm that there is a new age. Let me summarize what I think Jesus says in this passage Firstly, he says, there is a resurrection life. And in that resurrection life, there's no death. Death's done away with. And because there's no death, well, then there's no need for procreation. And because there's no need for procreation, there's no need for marriage. There will be a resurrection, Jesus says, and it will be eternal resurrection. He's clear on that. But, and there's a but in this passage, I wonder if you saw it, but this resurrection, it's only for those who will be considered worthy of taking part in the age to come. That, I think, is a pretty reasonable summary of what Jesus says in this passage. But I wonder if Luke, our author of this passage, wants us to take away more from this passage than just that summary. See, I think he doesn't want us just to know about what life in the next age will be like. But he's also using these words to help us see who Jesus is. Not just what life will be like in the age to come, but also who Jesus is. Who is he? He's a teacher who speaks well. Did you see that in the passage today? A teacher who speaks well. A teacher who speaks with real knowledge and and real wisdom. And he knows what the age to come will be like. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has been challenged, is it? I wasn't here last week, but I think you saw last week that the pre-spies come to Jesus with a question about money. That wasn't a genuine question, really, was it? It was a trap. And our passage today, I want you to see it's similar to that. The Sadducees, I think, are trying to trick or to trap Jesus. And our author, Luke, uses this encounter to show us the wisdom of Jesus. Let me show you. Come back with me. If you've got your Bibles open, that'd be terrific. Come back with me uh, just to the verse immediately before this passage, to verse 26. It's the immediate context and the end of the passage that I saw you saw last week. And I want you to see here Luke's summary of the interaction with Jesus and the spies about the money. 
It's there in verse 26. This is what it said. It says, they, I think that's the spies, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. We'll now come towards the end of the passage that we looked at today, to verses 39 and 40. I want you to see a similar summary passage. This is what it says there, verse 39. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. So can you see what's going on in this passage, in this section of the Bible? I think Luke wants to show us a bit more about life in the age to come. But behind that, and possibly even more importantly than that, he wants us to see the wisdom and the authority of Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is wise and trustworthy. He's not like human teachers. Jesus is a man who speaks with real and genuine authority about what God wants from us and about what we should expect in the age to come. And so we should listen to this teacher, shouldn't we? If you walk away from here today with just one thing in your mind, I hope it's this. Jesus is worth listening to because he speaks with real authority. If you walk away with one thing, it's this. Jesus is worth listening to because he speaks with real authority. Now, I've broken this passage down into three sections for you today. You can see those sections in your outline if you um, have got that in front of you. The sections are the trap. It's the first section. Section two, we're going to talk a little bit about the age to come. And the third section, we'll talk about the teacher who speaks well. Let's start by looking at the trap. That's point one in your outline. So in the previous section, the priests had sent spies to check on Jesus. In this section, those who are asking the question are... The Sadducees. Now, if you've been to Sunday school before, you might, remember, you might remember the saying, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, the truth of the matter is, we don't actually know that much about the Sadducees. Writers think that they were a Jewish sect and part of the temple elite. It's pretty clear they don't believe in the resurrection. It also seems they don't believe that the soul survives beyond death. What we do know about the Sadducees is it seemed that they rejected a lot of the Jewish oral teaching and they really saw only the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, as authoritative. And the Sadducees in this passage, they come to Jesus with a trick question. It's, it's almost like a riddle, isn't it? It's one of those questions where the asker doesn't really want the answer. It's a question really that's just designed to make Jesus look like a fool. I reckon it's not the first time the Sadducees have used this question when talking about the resurrection. I reckon they've played this card before. Now let me read to you from verses 28 to 33 and you can follow along. Here's what they say. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her and in the same way. The seventh, seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? 
Now what's going on here is something called leveret marriage, leveret coming from the, the Latin word meaning brother, and the intention here is that the man's name might be carried on by his brother. And to our ears today, this is a, it's a bizarre concept, isn't it? I think even more than bizarre, it's, it's almost offensive, this idea in our world today. If this rule still kind of existed in our world today, I reckon my brother's wives would take extra special care of their husband, right? They'd not be letting them climb ladders. They wouldn't be going out on motorbikes. Why not? Well, they might end up with me. And this is, this is a foreign concept in our world today, isn't it? Even the idea of a man's name being carried on seems out of place for us today. That's a bit of a reminder for us, isn't it, that sometimes things in the ancient world were just different. Back in the ancient times, there weren't the same social security networks that we have today. Leverage marriage not only kept a man's name going, but it also ensured that the widow was left with a family and a place to live and was looked after. This idea, it seems offensive to us today, but it probably wasn't offensive in the ancient world, even even if it wasn't necessarily a good idea back then. You can see at the end of Genesis a story about why this isn't such a good idea. But it probably wasn't offensive. So it's leverage marriage that jumps out at us here in this passage as being a bit strange, but it's not the marriage system that the Sadducees are questioning. No, they're concerned with what happens to the wife after she dies. And the Sadducees' riddle is supposed to make the idea of the resurrection look silly. They're saying, when the woman finally dies with her seven husbands dead before her. By the way, husbands three to seven, they're pretty brave, aren't they? I reckon. When they've all died before her, who will she be married to in the age to come? Perhaps this previous riddle had left their opponents stumped. You can almost imagine the Sadducees kind of landing this and then quietly laughing or the smirk across their faces. You can think, see them thinking you might have been able to handle the question about money, Jesus, but here's something that will finally trip you up. The trap has been set. But point two, I want you to see that Jesus is not caught. Let me read on from verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Instead of being trapped... Jesus shows the Sadducees that their whole premise of what happens in the age to come is wrong. In his answer, I want you to see he's showing real knowledge of what's to come. He's confident and he's assured, isn't he? He's speaking with real authority. And he can do that because he's God. He knows what to come. He's got insight from beyond this world. Let me give you an example of how this sort of works. Over the last few years, escape rooms have become a kind of popular thing to do. I wonder, have you ever tried an escape room? A few of you have done them. If you haven't, the idea is you get locked in a room 
And you have to pay money to do this. It sounds kind of like a strange thing. Who would pay money to get locked in a room? That's the whole idea behind the escape rooms. Last year, um, my wife's sister and her husband came over from Sydney to stay with us for a few days. And we thought we'd go out for an evening meal. And I said, "Ah, let's do something a bit more interesting. Let's go to an escape room as well. And Meredith and her... Meredith, my wife, and her sister were a bit dubious. That just sounds scary. No, I said, it's not scary at all. You, you have to solve lots of puzzles in order to find your way out. And then they turned around and said, that just sounds geeky now. But my brother-in-law, Doug, he'd done an escape room before. He knew what they were like. He knew how fun they were. And he said, great idea. Let's go and do an escape room. See, he had knowledge of what they were like. He'd experienced it, and so he's able to speak with confidence about the joy of escape rooms. In a way, Jesus does the same thing here. He has real insight into the age to come, and so he speaks with authority, and he tells the Sadducees that their premise is all wrong. So what does he say? Well, he tells the Sadducees that the age to come is not simply an extension of this life. It's different. Now, I wish Jesus would shed a bit more light here on what the age to come is actually like. But all he really says, I think, in this passage is that in the age to come, there's no death. In that way, people are more like angels. They are sons of God. And if there's no death, then there's no need for parents to give birth to children We are instead children of God, and if there's no need for parents to give birth to babies, then there's no need for marriage. I think that's the logic of Jesus' argument here. I wonder how that makes you feel this morning. You may think there's more to marriage than just producing children. Surely that's correct in a way. Perhaps this morning you're sitting here as a married person or as someone hoping to get married. How does Jesus' statement leave you feeling? Now, I'm getting to that age. In fact, in a couple of years' time, I will have been married for more years than I haven't been married. And to be honest, it's a bit strange for me to imagine a future in which I'm not married to Meredith. Nearly all of my adult life I've been married. I remember the vows that I took. It was till death do us part. So what do we take away from this? What does it mean for us? I'm borrowing from David Garland, a commentator on this passage. He says this, Jesus' cursory remarks offer few clues about the resurrection life, except that it will be totally dissimilar to this worldly one. Few clues to the resurrection life, except that it will be totally dissimilar from the worldly one. I think that's a really helpful observation for us today because I suspect that many of us simply think of the age to come and the life to come as an extension of this life. When you think about the resurrection life, what do you think of? Maybe you're living in the same house, but you never need to mow the lawn, right? Or maybe you're driving the same car, but you don't have to fill it with petrol every now and again. Or you do the same job in the resurrection life, but the boss just lets you do whatever you want. Jesus only gives us a little glance into the future. But for me, it highlights what theologians call the discontinuities, the differences. And the big one is there's no death and therefore no need for babies and no need for marriage. And I guess for some of us, this is a bit scary because our marriages might be really important to us. And the idea of not being married, it's not only 
strange, but maybe also undesirable. Maybe you think, I don't actually want that. I, I want to be married. But let me encourage you today, the age to come includes all things being made right. It includes the end of pain. It's like relationships will work perfectly. The age to come will be glorious. But there's more to these verses than just the discontinuity. There's also a challenge for us here as readers. I wonder if you saw that when Val read it. Did you notice it? Jesus says the age to come is for those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead. And as I read it, it feels to me like Jesus has just lobbed a grenade at the Sadducees. He's saying to them essentially, are you worthy? It should have us asking as we read this passage, am I worthy? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Are you worthy of taking part in the resurrection life? The religious leaders have been trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick him. And Luke, our writer, has been carefully contrasting those who they think are worthy, like the religious elite, with those like, well, like Zacchaeus, who you saw a few weeks ago. A tax collector who was willing to run the indignity of that and climb a tree, wearing a robe nonetheless, because he wanted to see Jesus. And as broken and as spiritually sick as he was, he found Jesus. And because of his trust in Jesus and his longing to be with him, he was counted worthy. This is the story of the Bible, isn't it? Our worth is, is not in what we've done or who we are. Our value or our worth is found in Jesus loving us and calling us one of his own. That's how we're counted worthy. Being a child of his. Maybe things are going pretty well for you at the moment. You might have the car that you want. You might have the job that you want. You might finally have the house that you want. Maybe all's well in your family. If that's you, that's terrific. It's a great blessing from God. Give thanks to God for that. But it does make it harder, if that's the case, for you to depend on Jesus and to run towards him. Remember, that's the message of chapter 18 of Luke with the rich ruler. All right, we must press on. When you see my final point today, Jesus is the teacher who speaks well. And we see this in verses 37 to 38. Jesus refers to an Old Testament passage. He says this, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Why doesn't Jesus just stop this conversation at verse 36? He's made his case by that point. He's refuted the Sadducees and shown that he knows more of the age to come than they do. So why does he keep going? Well, I think what's happening here is Jesus is demonstrating his wisdom and his authority. He's speaking to the Sadducees, remember? And again, we don't know that much about the Sadducees, but it is thought that they treated only the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he quotes from one of these books. He quotes from Exodus. And I think the gist of what Jesus is saying is that God is the God of the living, and if God is also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must somehow be living when Jesus is making this statement. 
Now, clearly these men died thousands of years ago. So for them to be alive today, there must be a resurrection life. That's the logic. The Sadducees come to Jesus with a riddle, a trick or a trap. That's what I think they're doing. And not only does Jesus set them straight by helping them to see what life in the age to come is like, but he also puts the Sadducees in their place by using the very thing that the Sadducees prided themselves on, knowledge of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And in doing so, Jesus again demonstrates his mastery of the Scriptures. He again demonstrates his authority. And that's reflected in the final observation in this little passage. The scribes, I suppose they're like the modern-day journalists of the time, they say, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. And I think these last two verses in this passage, they kind of drive home at this underlying point that Luke wants us to know. The passage certainly has something to say about marriage, and it ends with death. This passage has something to say about life in the age to come. That it's real. And secondly, there's some pretty different differences between this age and the life to come. But behind all of this, behind speaking about what the age to come is like, behind all of this, Luke is making a bigger picture, a more pertinent picture. And that is this. Jesus speaks with authority. Jesus is the teacher who speaks well. He's the one with knowledge beyond this world. You know, he stepped around the trick post by the priest's spies in relation to money. Now he's firmly put the Sadducees back in a box. Here we should see a man who knows what he's talking about. He has real knowledge about the age to come. And real knowledge about how to get there. So what should we do? Well, we should listen to his words, shouldn't we? We should take his teaching seriously. We should ask ourselves, will we be considered worthy to enter into the age to come? We should ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus means when he speaks about worthiness? And if we do that, if we take his words seriously, won't that look like a change in the way of life? Won't it look like a kind of change in posture or a change in attitude? Surely it will give rise to a posture of dependence and trust upon Jesus, where we run to Jesus like Zacchaeus the tax collector in chapter 19, where we delight in Jesus and worship him and honour him, knowing that he's the only one who can make us worthy. You know, in other parts of the Bible, Jesus refers to himself as the gate, the entryway into the age to come. From this passage, I want you to see that Jesus knows what life in the age to come is like. He knows that today because he's already got his resurrection body. And just like in the Narnia books where they enter in via a wardrobe, Jesus is the way in which we enter into the new age. And that means we should give him thanks and praise. I'm going to do that by praying with you now. Will you join with me as I pray? Father God, we thank you for this passage that shows us the great authority of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. We thank you that he is the first fruits of the resurrection that we can trust in the new age to come because he has special knowledge of it. We pray that you would help us long for the age to come. 
And we ask that by your spirit, you would empower us to live a life where our attitude is changed. And we seek to run towards Jesus, just like Zacchaeus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.